carry a handkerchief? No, I've got one of those. Oh. You know those ones you have in your pocket that are sewn in? A pocket square. Well, yeah, but it's is not a proper pocket square if it's, if oh, it's, it's sewn, sewn in. in no. Yeah, you know, I'm never going to blow it. Well, with my nose. Thank God I'm never going to blow it. You need but, a windsock. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's still let's keep it sensible about napkins. Um, so, yeah, it's sewn in. Can't use it, but it looks great. Paisley. What's, what colour? Oh, God. That is a, that is a slurp. He always does that. What, so, what, so, are you saying that we shouldn't call it a handkerchief? No, no, no. I think Chinch is right that a napkin, I suspect, is technically a cloth thing, whereas a serviette is a tissue. Construction. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> Where does a sheet of kitchen roll come into it? Well, that clearly is for mopping up dog urine and spilt red wine. That is not for blowing your nose on. It's a bit of an insight into your lifestyle there, Chinch. The <laughs> it is a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> bit of a giveaway there. I wish the dog had stopped drinking. I would say that kitchen roll can be used for all of those jobs. It's, an, it's a nose blow. It's a clear up. It's a serviette. There is there is nothing in our house apart from kitchen roll. There it's is. You've got like a sofa. No, no. It also works as an excellent sofa. <laughs> Just pile it up and pile it up. Probably does actually, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, thick it, ply. Do you have a break in whilst you're away? <laughs> We're not talking about Hugh's holiday. I refuse to engage with it. I refuse what? to engage with him having a paradise holiday when Again. the rest of us are stuck doing things for small people. Since I reckon, how many times has Hugh had a once-in-a-lifetime holiday in the time that we've been doing this podcast. About six, but you know that he's got massive debts. <laughs> I hope so. It's all on the credit card. He's only got one kidney. <laughs> That's the payoff. We're not talking about Hugh's holiday. Why? Because it's annoying. It's interesting. When, when was the have last... you been to the Seychelles recently? No. Steve, have you been to the Seychelles recently? I went to Pembrokeshire last year. <laughs> Let's talk about that later. <laughs> talk about the Seychelles. Tell us something interesting about the Seychelles. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. The food is being enjoyed um, greatly by all four of us. The Stop <laughs> making that noise. Chinch is, Chinch is particularly... Why are you particularly thrilled, Chinch, at the coffee that you're imbibing at the moment? Because this is the second... Is that a carafe? It's not really no, a carafe. It's a cafetiere. A cafetiere. The first cafetiere we got from Rory, I poured it out for everybody... Had a little on sip. instruction. On, on instruction, was told to deliver the coffee. Um, started to drink it, and it was stone cold. Now, being the man that I am, I was quite happy just to gulp it all down and not say anything. But then I thought, wait a minute, Steve, they're going to have to drink this and realise why have I not said it's stone cold? Apparently, someone, Rory, had forgot to boil the kettle for the cafetiere. That, that is a pretty basic when you're making coffee: hot water. That isn't quite <laughs> what happened. That is exactly what happened. No, what happened was I boiled the kettle. Kate then used that water for a teapot without me noticing as I was focusing on the bacon sandwiches, filled the kettle up, and then a few minutes later said to me, have you boiled the kettle? But I had not noticed the whole process. So I said, yes, because I remember doing it. But what she meant was, have you boiled the kettle since I emptied the kettle, which I did not, which I hadn't done. Would you like to, by way of compensation, uh, like to explain the food that you have provided, which is all warm or cold, depending on its tradition? Uh, I've made you some bacon sandwiches. No, 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 no. Not just bacon not sandwiches. Not just bacon sandwiches. They are literally just bacon no, sandwiches. No, no, no. Well, they are bacon sandwiches, but they're bacon sandwiches plus plus, aren't they? They're bacon sandwiches where, <laughs> in which I have used not only the co-op's second most inexpensive type of bacon, <laughs> but some ciabatta rather than your traditional bread. Which which makes it so good because, Ginger, as you just described, it is... It's crunchy but soft. <laughs> crunchy the but perfect soft. accompaniment to... Substandard bacon. <laughs> Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Andy Hinchcliffe, the assist king. Yes! Rory Smith, the king of the world. More DiCaprio than Muhammad Ali. And Stephen, well, 
Stephen King. Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast via at Set Piece Menu, as so many did, to point out the stat that was produced upon the ninth assist by Andy Robertson in the Premier League season, which is still two behind the record holders, Leighton Baines and somebody else. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. We're also on Facebook. Just search for Set Piece Menu. Um, anything you'd like to say about the fact that you are the Premier League assist uh, it's, king? Well, is, that just, it's, is that just for left backs? I think it's for defenders. defenders. Right. It's all quite. Defenders. It just happens they're all. I'm always going to run myself Mersey down. Merseyside based left back. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not the. It's quite a surprising list, that, isn't it? If someone had said to you in the Premier Pinchley, League years. Baines, Robertson. It's, yes. Yeah, you would have expected maybe. Patrice mm. Everett. Yes, possibly. Yes, yeah, possibly. Uh, so I was a little bit surprised that I'm still up there with the. Uh, with the best. What season was that? 94, 95? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you remember being particularly feeling cre- particularly creative? Did you do, do any artwork that As long year? as the ball Did was stood still, a rolling ball I had a problem with, general yes. play. <laughs> but from corners free kicks with a standing... Oh, abs- I'm sure Howard Kendall used to call me Adam from Adam of the Ants because stand and deliver. That's what he thought I was very good at. Did, is that true or is that a joke? I think it's true. We'll never know. No, we will never know. If if it was a question on a question of sport, yeah, he said, "I'll have eleven, please, Sue." And the question was, "What eleven is a statistical figure from the career of Andy Hinchcliffe?" Would you have said assists, or would you have said pass completion percentage? I'd have said injuries sustained in the course of one year, <laughs> or mark out of a hundred for his career. Uh, now we have had a lot, a lot uh, of correspondence on our two-parter on the modern football fan. We start with this from James Davis, who writes Dear team, your last podcast is the first I can remember completely disagreeing with. Ooh. At last. Uh, how can you argue that a fan who chooses to buy a season ticket is not a more dedicated supporter than someone who chooses to use that money for a gym membership, for nine out in town to join a golf club for an extra holiday to pay for a Sky subscription etc etc James is angry that he hasn't got any of those things <laughs> James is very specific <laughs> about his particulars there join <laughs> the golf club James <laughs> did we argue any of that by the way how can you disagree that a fan who chooses to fit their life around their club's fixtures is not a more dedicated supporter than someone who doesn't how can you disagree that a fan who turns up to cheer on their team come rain or shine is not more dedicated than someone who chooses to sit in the comfort of their own home how can you disagree this is very much structured like a political speech, you can tell that a fan who travels the length and breadth of the country, possibly the continent, to support their team is not more dedicated than someone who chooses not to. Hang on, we, we, we specifically signalled that out as different um, away supporters. I think you will have your chance. I yeah. didn't do this podcast, did I? No, no, Maybe that's part of the reason that, this, that people are upset. He goes possibly. on to say, mm, I'd brought the balance. Um, of course, some fans are better than others. I watch Wimbledon every year, but I'm a lesser tennis fan than someone who watches every ATP tour event. Nobody and they're that. less of a fan than someone who travels to every ATP tour Literally, nobody does event. That. I'm not saying you shouldn't be allowed to call yourself a fan of a team unless you go to every game, sing every song, and are disgusted by half and half scarves. But to act like all fans are just as committed as one another is doing a huge disservice to those who dedicate incredible amounts of time and money to supporting their team. One final example. Someone from abroad who pays thousands of pounds and uses half their annual leave to fly to the UK to watch West Brom versus Stoke they hit a very much <laughs> very annual leave game. is a better fan than the bloke in Dudley who doesn't know the way to the Hawthorns but watches them on the TV whenever he can it's not about geography it's not about wealth it's about dedication I'm sure your usual excellence will return next week <laughs> despite Chinch being back <laughs> <laughs> that's from James hang on a minute I, I, well, that's there's a lot of good bubble, stuff in there, and I could have brought the balance to that podcast. But clearly, what were you playing at? No, you so upset one person. 
What are you playing at? A, a one person. Yeah. That's the first for people that we've upset. Yeah. The so yeah, I, I'm sure we did make it an, an exception for for away fans. I'm sure we said that that is a, that's a different level. I think he's probably right that it's it maybe we missed a nuance. Maybe we, we missed a nuance that it is to do with dedication. I think the the perception or the kind of stereotype that you are a better fan because you are British or because you are local is wrong and outdated and infuriating. And I, th- I stand by that. But I guess what it is is to do with expressing dedication in the way that you can. So you you maybe can't go to every game. You maybe do have that the money to buy a season ticket, but you have to spend that on other things. And yeah, perhaps that makes you a less dedicated fan if you choose to spend it on a gym membership, although that is... I don't know, is a, a, gym, a gym membership in a season ticket probably over the course of a year probably don't cost a vast amount of difference and you probably use them roughly the same amount of time. <laughs> How much uh, is a season ticket, roughly, uh, average? Upwards of 700, 800 yeah, quid. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right there. Probably not far off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 60, 70 quid for a gym membership. So that's like for a golf club yeah. membership. Yeah. I, did, we, did we use the word dedicated? I think we, we more made the point that there is more than one way yes. to passionately follow a club. I don't think anyone would suggest that the fan that has just been described there as being particularly dedicated is not the most dedicated type of supporter. I think the point we were trying to make and to appeal to our global audience is that you shouldn't diminish the support offered by somebody who can't offer that level of dedication without at any point actually using the dedication word. But people do what they can. That's the point. And I I think maybe maybe that's what we should have arrived at is that you shouldn't judge people. There isn't a kind of. A, there's not a set hierarchy of what you have to do to be a good fan. I was going to say, do, do fans differentiate between themselves yes. about I'm better than you? Yes, they do. Yes, and right, and, okay. and in our defence, and I'll be uh, the, the one trying to offer this defence uh, as the person who attempts to structure the podcast in a certain way, um, is that we probably made those points separately without comparing them. James assumes that we were comparing them which is perhaps not something we were doing. We were not necessarily saying that one person was dedicated and that person is less dedicated. We were saying they were both dedicated in a certain way and to say that one is better than the other is not necessarily something that we did, I don't okay. think. Yeah. Anyway, no, it's a, it's a, it's a good email. It's is, a good there, email. is there such a thing as a bad fan? Uh, yes, but we didn't really discuss that, did we? <laughs> That's a podcast for another day, maybe. Yeah, it certainly is. Good, good idea, Chinch. Chinch is back from Portugal and he's bringing the, bringing the content. Oh, yeah. The red back rag to tw- a bull. 24 hours in Portugal. So that's the thought. Hugh, can you write all the script for the episode? Is that okay? If yes, I leave that to you. Absolutely Thanks. Absolutely fine. Thanks. Uh, Aaron Brenner is back in touch. Dear Hugh, Rory and Steve. <laughs> uh, Hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Say that again. Dear Hugh, Rory and Steve. Oh, this is disgraceful behaviour. I know they're your names. There's one missing. Rory is off mic because Rory is eating. Uh, Once again, I feel compelled to respond to the podcast this week because I am a 55-year-old man and a North American, two identities you discussed and somewhat disparaged. As a 55-year-old, I don't have a particular style when watching a match, either at home or at the ground. I'm certainly not the curmudgeon you described. As you may recall, I'm a New York Red Bulls fan, and at the New York Derby, I join the chants, even start them sometimes. I am way louder than many of the millennials around me. On the other hand, at a snooze fest against Orlando, I'm barely paying attention, and even my teenage daughter's gossip about her school friends is more interesting. It's not my experience that positive and boisterous support or lazy and poisonous cynicism correlate with age. I concur with Hugh's statement to start the pot, which is obviously why this email has been included. There is no right way to be a fan, but there are some wrong ways. I'm not sure where to draw the line, but a curmudgeonly 55-year-old man is on the right side of that line. Thank you for the great podcast. 
Did we record the same podcast as people were listening to? I don't remember calling there, there was, 55-year-old North a, Americans commodities. No, no, those two, there were two different things. North Americans and 55-year-olds, and he uh, is drawing attention to I think fa- we, we defended North Americans, didn't we? But you, you mentioned about the 55-year-old regular fan ah, who is he, not necessarily responsible for the best atmosphere at football stadiums. He's missed off a crucial, crucial phrase. He's missed, missed off my parenthesis, and as, as, as everyone who knows me knows, the detail is in the parenthesis. <laughs> I said 55-year-old men who don't, contribute to the atmosphere or words to that effect there are a lot of people who go to games because they've been known to games for years and it takes quite a lot to get them excited as you get older that's what happens <laughs> um, so I'm in my 50s what you'd say so it may well be that he he doesn't f- fit that criterion that he's he's a passionate sort of noisy 55 year old fan there are lots of people as they get older who's who continue to occupy space in the stadium but do not add very much in the way so, of decibels. I'm in my 50s now. I go and watch Rotherham Bolton. It's going to take a bit longer for my juices to start flowing. <laughs> Correct. Is that, yes. what, is that what happens yes. to you in your 50s? Yes. Man alive. Something to look forward to, Chinch. Fred yeah. Schlichting is also from North America, but doesn't tell us his age, which is suitable for this moment. He writes from Columbus. Gentleman and Andy Algarve, he starts. What? <laughs> <laughs> While I can agree with you on the points that the stadium experience has improved since the 1990s, this goes for baseball here in the US as well, and that for the big European clubs more money comes from the international market now, I have to disagree with you about migrant fans. I'm a firm believer of supporting your hometown club. The only reason why a guy from Beijing supports Manchester United is because he is being marketed to. Football clubs or sport teams in general shouldn't be seen or run in the same way as brands. It diminishes the communal aspect of sport. Football clubs can be important institutions to a city brands are not guy from beijing is essentially supporting the apple or the nike of football clubs thanks for your show that's from fred the i I mean i broadly agree with that i I think that the one of the problems with the way that the premier league and the champions league in particular kind of marketed and the way that the bundesliga and Serie A and and la liga talk about conquering new territories is that it's it strangles indigenous football cultures at birth basically and that is problematic it's it, it would be better for there to be a really strong lead in China. And to be fair, the CSL's getting better, I think, um, without kind of those people being seen as, as a resource to be conquered by marketing departments. But I I don't know. I think that at the, even if you've come to it because you're being marketed at, you can probably still support them passionately. I would, I would imagine there's an awful lot of people in China, just as there are in the States, who support not only a European team, but one of their local teams as well. And I think that is fine. We've done this before, to be fair, haven't we? Yes, no, that, that's true. There were a lot of people getting in touch about um, t- teams, why you support them, uh, rather than how you support them, which I think we said at the beginning of the couple of uh, episodes that we did on this new subject, that if you'd like to go back and listen to, I think it's 96 and 97 from Seppi's Menu, that talks about how uh, how you come to support the club that you do, whether it's inherited, whether it's geographical. Um, so hopefully you'll find that an interesting discussion, because there were a couple of people, including Liam Byrne, who got in touch to say, some of us don't live near a football club. It is simply not a football club there within 70 to 100 miles that we can support, so therefore we have to necessarily find somewhere or a team to support that isn't geographically local. Did we get anything right over the course of the past? This is brilliant, though. This is great. We want people to disagree. As it it turns out, um, because all good things come in threes, and so it would appear does disagreement, this is from atsagegunner47 on Twitter. Listening to at setpiece menu, and one thing I think most Europeans get wrong when talking about American sports is how mobile they think franchises are. They clearly move more than in Europe, but it's still really rare for a team to move. 
As an American exposed to the British discussion of US sport, it comes up way too often as a reason to examine the differences. The stated desire of the league is to not move teams. It only happens that due to an oddity, we've had two fairly recent relocations in the NFL, as LA was a vacant market when it never should have been. The better com- comparison with UK clubs are American college teams. Huge revenue at the top end, massive disparity between levels, deep established rivalries. Just on the relocations issue, there have only been eight in the Super Bowl era, so just eight in 50-plus years. And as a podcast partially set up to rail against lazy assumptions, we should probably not be responsible for it when we invoke other sports. So uh, that's clarifying that. But Steve, who is our social media correspondent, uh, took this young gentleman, Sage Gunner 47, to task. Well, I, if something is taboo, as it is in European football, the idea that a club would geographically move location, if you see something similar happen elsewhere, it is going to... You're going to notice it. Mm. It is going to capture your imagination and it's going to make you think, I'm not sure I agree with that and I'm glad it doesn't happen here. So yes, it might not happen as frequently in North American sport as Europeans might believe that it does, but the fact that it happens at all makes it extraordinary to us. And especially if you consider teams like the Raiders and the Rams who are either about to or who have moved twice during the course of their existence and of course the the lifespan of North American sport is significantly smaller than the the lifespan of so far of European top flight sport that makes it all the more extraordinary and and the comparison with college sport is is interesting in terms of I understand it from a point of view is placing the community and the disparity as, as Sage Gunner 47 pointed out you know and huge crowds yeah, yeah, hundreds crowd. of thousands first of name people. Sage second name Gunner yeah. 47 yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we, as, as long as we're all clear about that <laughs> But I, I don't quite see how something that is effectively a pathway towards professionalism mm. and for which you have a sh- an age-restricted shelf life can be comparable to the elite level of sport elsewhere. I find the college thing really interesting because I, I think that I think that parallel is, is is really apposite in terms of the atmosphere and the, the the connection that people feel to their college teams and and the the way the support and and in Mr Gunner forty sevens uh, defence, I think that was the point that he was yeah, making. and that's no, I th- I, th- I I agree with that completely. What I find fascinating is that that atmosphere does not seem to translate to professional sports in the states, particularly in my experience, and I may be wrong. That that you get these incredible sites at, at kind of Auburn and Ole Miss football games, and then you can go to a professional sports game and the atmosphere doesn't seem quite as frenzied, except when teams in Chicago win something, when apparently they riot, which is an interesting way to celebrate. Philadelphia, they riot also. I see. I mean, that's an interesting cultural difference as well. The, the Bear in mind that that... We, we probably do overstate how often they, they move, but the two things I would say is, that's just the NFL. What about the baseball, the ice hockey, there will be, there will be and the basketball? There are others. I realise that's a lot of teams, but it's probably not more than 92, or not a lot more than 92, and only one of them has moved in 140 years, whatever. And the other thing is that the threat of them moving is regularly deployed by owners wanting new stadiums and wanting the cities to pay for them. So that must, by its very nature, in affect the way you support your club or your team because you must, for most American sports franchises, there must have been a threat of them being relocated at some point in the relatively recent past. You know that there is the possibility that they might move. Most of the time, as, as Mr. Donner 47 says, they they don't, but just having the threat is a significant difference, I think. 
Yeah, that, that, Bolton are a club in peril at the moment financially and are on the brink potentially of going out of business. Which is a shame because they're right by the motorway. Yeah, it's really convenient <laughs> to get to if you live in It's like, it's like West Brom. You want those places where you can get to easily. Yeah. You know, but the Bolton ownership is not sort of threatening with moving to Leamington Spa where there's a gap in the well, you know, championship level market. There's no TV <laughs> market in Leamington Spa, Steve. Stop talking about Leamington Spa. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been to Leamington. Have I, have I it's very nice. Leamington Spa before? Um, so, yeah, the fact that it can happen... Right as opposed to it not happening is obviously yeah adds to the the fascination that we have for it all i know about leamington spa is that it gave birth to steve the bronze and honest beaten and frankly leamington spa's work is done because of that who check him out the darts player whoa uh, gorgeous um that by the way that eight relocations doesn't in it doesn't count for the for the Franchises that ceased to exist and then started up somewhere else, like, for example, Baltimore, Cleveland, all that sort of stuff, just in case anybody gets in touch about that, because it's a bit complicated. Uh, finally, uh, Joop Smates, who has got in touch before from Holland. Yeah, we like him. We like him very much. We like him mu- even more now, because he says this. Dear Andy and others. I like him. I like him a lot. For many pods now, I have had to listen to the name of one of my brief childhood heroes be dragged through the mud. Oh, God. It was the 28th of May, 1995, a week after some team from Liverpool won some cup or another. Get in! I was nine years old and present for the last match of my club's historic best finish season. We'd come second behind Louis van Gaal's Champions League winning Ajax and were the only team not to suffer at least one defeat at their hands. In our last game, we played at home against Feyenoord, the same Feyenoord that would effortlessly knock out from European competition the aforementioned team from Liverpool a few months later. Oh, no cheer from Chinch that time. Effortlessly 1-0 over two games. As an emphatic exclamation point behind a glorious campaign, we crushed them, the mighty Feyenoord, 5-0. At the centre of it all, snarling, tackling and scoring was Raymond Atterveldt. He was an integral part of the best Rhoda JC team I have ever seen. He was my hero. However, he subsequently left the club for more money, set an Eredivisie record for red cards in a season, returned to Rhoda many years later for one season as a coach, only to pick a fight with our star player, the details of which are so slanderous and libel-worthy, I will not share them. So yes, Raymond was indeed an Atterveldt, but for one miraculous season in which he picked up a record number of 11 yellow cards, he was our Atterveldt. With kind regards, yup. We've all been good for one season. We've all been good for half a season. But again, yes, clearly there were good signs in there. But ultimately, he is what he is. An Atavelt. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, you can get in touch by at Seppiesmenu or Seppiesmenu at gmail.com. We are recording this episode number 123 <coughs> in the week following Liverpool's win over Spurs at Anfield, which itself was recorded thanks to Ugo Lloris's hand, Toby Alderweireld's shin and Moussa Sissoko's nosebleed. Uh, the Lloris part was uh, interesting as it was the third goalkeeping blunder that has provided Liverpool with a crucial late win this season and maintained, of course, their Premier League title challenge. All this may well look a little silly in five weeks' time, but still, let's ask this question. How much of a thing really is luck? Jurgen Klopp admitted luck was involved, but said that they deserved it. The Telegraph's Chris Bascom has written a piece this week saying, it's not about luck, it's about fitness, courage, skill and mentality. While wags on Twitter, like Rory Smith, whoever he is, wrote after the game, realised Twitter's kind of predisposed not to take this idea well, but when all is said and done, that was a bit of a fluke, wasn't it? Really? Deep down? Actually, not deep down. Then there is the name on the trophy narrative. Clive Tilsley gave himself the mother of all commentary setups and payoffs when during Manchester United's Champions League campaign of 98-99, he kept on mentioning that for United, it might just be predetermined that they would win the trophy. Fate 
tends to be a go-to line. Indeed, Peter Drury did it after the Liverpool Spurs game, partly because it captures the moment, partly because it sets up the possibility of an even greater story, and partly because it doesn't really matter if it doesn't get the payoff, because fate just happened to shine her light elsewhere. But without delving into too many Buddhist teachings, can fate play a part in a team's success? Can it be the catalyst to a self-fulfilling prophecy? So, luck and fate, wishy-washy tosh, or something more tangible? Well, look, we can put an actual figure on. So, yes, look accounts for 50... 50% of the results in football matches are down to look. 50% of what happens is pure random chance. That is a, a statistic that people have happened upon. How do we determine what luck is? Is luck determined by the fact that somebody else makes a mistake? Or is it more random even than more, another no, human being involved? Chaos. Just the general randomness of existence. Is Luck is probably the wrong word for that statistic, but there is just a general kind of stuff can happen randomness arbitrary it's not just in football though. it's, it's no, life it's, isn't yeah. it it's but in, in the numbers game uh, by Chris Anderson and David Sandler edited by edit, I can't remember who edited it but they, they did a great job the, um, <laughs> that is the figure that they arrived at that roughly 50% of, of, of what happens on a pitch is kind of random chance rather than yeah. luck so that, that's good enough for me that feels that feels about right to me as well that if you watch most games sometimes it's not I, I wrote a piece after that Spurs-Liverpool game about this desire to to see kind of moments that define seasons and to this, that we all believe that kind of there are points at which we can say, well, that's that's when we knew. And if you think if you go back through the course of this season, there's about 15 of them for Liverpool and City. So which one is it? Mm. And that's not to mention all of the the shots that hit the inside of the post and go in, and the shots that hit the the, the the front of the post and go out and you know there's there's so many fine margins in football that a lot of it is Although to that's do not with luck that that is just physics it's not it's not luck but it is to an extent random chance because it's it, this sounds really stupid and whenever anyone mentions like climatic climactic conditions in football everyone laughs but it could be a gust of wind it could be a bit of a breeze it a could bubble be on the pitch a bubble on the pitch there's all that stuff that, that is t- a balloon on the pitch a balloon on the pitch a has happened a beach ball as, as has happened the endless litter on the pitch at Sunderland. There's always litter on the pitch. Very at Sunderland. breezy. Don't know why. The so there's there's all that stuff that can happen that that no one really is controlling. I guess that's the way you define it. That it's stuff that is happening not because one manager, one one team, one player has designed it that way. It's just stuff that has happened. Well, this is why I think coaches try to kind of take that look as if something they deserve. Like with that Liverpool game against Tottenham, they they changed apparently to four two four, and Jurgen Klopp went for it. That's why we deserve to win the game. No, it was pure luck that you won the game. It wasn't yep. really anything to do tactically with what you did. But coaches will always try and say, well, we deserve that bit of luck because of what I did. So you always try and claim it and say that there was a reason. There's something, yes, there is a little bit of luck in it, but there's still a reason behind it that something that I did or the team did that caused that little bit of luck to go our way, which clearly isn't true. But rather than just, well, I would just say it, just say yes. As you just cannoned off a play and went in and this, this we, we can't design that, we can't plan for that, train for that, it just happened to us. I, I guess the best way to, to think about it is that, in using that game as an example, that Chris, Chris Bastion's right that late goals in, in themselves are not necessarily a sign of a team being fluky. They're a sign of a team being fit, being organised and not giving up. Those are all, that's, that is a valid thing to think yeah. but, but there's also there, but at the same there's time there's empirical evidence behind the amount of chances that you create because you try harder for longer that obviously you will eventually take one of them yeah as well. and that, that's true so that, that, that all makes sense I totally agree or with that or the opposition might because they're constantly under pressure yeah. that eventually yeah. get tired They'll crack and, and you make, make a mistake. mistake yeah exactly you panic. but in that one instance that's not what happened what happened was no. Liverpool, Trent Alexander-Arnold hoofed across into the box because that's all he could do and it was dead late on Mo Salah 
headed the ball very weakly straight at Hugh Lloris and Hugh Lloris dropped it. There was no the the key thing that happened there was not that kind of Hugh Lloris hadn't been making a sort of string of fine saves and was physically exhausted. He just forgot to catch the ball. That's where the random chance comes in. That will happen every so often, about once every three games with Hugh Lloris. <laughs> but the the uh, or indeed for but, goalkeepers against Liverpool, as some would have you believe. And and often there are times when Liverpool or City or Spurs or whoever have scored a lot of late goals because they are continually pressing and yeah. they don't give up. Spurs didn't draw a game until what early March, mm. and there were That's quite right, there yeah. were quite a yeah. lot of late winners within that yeah. because they kept going they kept creating that pressure they, the opposition eventually buckled that's football that's not luck that's not being fortunate that's being good but in that instance just as in the um, the Merseyside derby instance when Jordan Pickford misjudged that sort of ballooned ball from Van Dijk there's not, that's not the, the aftermath of pressure or the consequence of a team being so high quality that eventually, eventually their ability told it's just random chance and it happens and I Fans, managers don't like it. Does it suggest that so they're is, not in control is, of everything? Is a mistake from Lloris or Pickford? Mister, is that luck or is that is that a mistake from the opposition? You know, so the ball hitting the post and going in, or hitting the post going out, is a bit more. The opposition players aren't involved. If the opposition player is involved, are we saying it is a little bit lucky for Liverpool? But it's still a, an error yeah. by the opposition. So, but they weren't under constant pressure, Tottenham, were they? So, so it's, uh, those mistakes aren't made because of the lack of luck for the opposition. Yes. So yeah, if you think yeah. about, you know, when when. Under Mourinho last season, United kept relying on David De Gea to make yep. a string of amazing mm-hmm. saves to keep them in games. And people kept saying, quite rightly, it's not cheating to have a good goalkeeper. That's the point. I think we said it. Yeah. That that's the point of having a good goalkeeper. That's why you go and get a good goalkeeper. Because when you need him, he will yeah. save you save you from defeat. And part of the thing that separates decent goalkeepers to very good ones is their ability to, to spring into action effectively when they might have been a relatively redundant contributor to the game for 80 odd minutes. Strikers score goals, we, we kind of say, well, fancy. it's their, their job. Yeah. Keeper makes saves. Hang on a minute. He's having to make Ooh. too many yeah, saves. Yeah. Yeah. Your no. keeper's too busy. Yeah. What? Anyway. But anyway, so <laughs> so it's not it, it's not cheating to have a good goalkeeper. Yeah. And it's it is a flaw in your team if you have a goalkeeper who regularly makes mistakes, as Hugh Lloris very sadly seems to do now. That that is, it is now a characteristic of his that every so often Hugh Lloris makes a mistake. So that is a flaw in Tottenham. The luck is that it happened for Liverpool. Yeah, it might not have happened in that game. It could have happened next against whoever they've got next week. It could have happened in a month's time. Do you know what I mean? That that mistake, Hugh Lloris might maybe was always going to make that that mistake or a mistake like it. The good fortune for Liverpool, the random chance is the timing of it. Yeah. Does it to be honest, if that had happened even 15 minutes beforehand, still no reason Liverpool would have won that game. The Spurs were, were well on top. And Adler might not have been there. It yeah, might have gone yeah. safely. Yeah. The application of pressure by good teams contributes massively to any degree of fortune that goes in their favour as well, whether it's those Liverpool incidents against Everton and Tottenham. You know, if that had happened in the 10th minute of the game with a less congested penalty area, would Loris have made the mistake? Almost certainly not. Mm-hmm. But un- under the pressure of getting a valuable result or feeling like you were the team that could go on and win it, uh, but suddenly finding yourself on the back foot and Liverpool committing to trying to find the winning goal themselves that contributed to the luck that went in their favour in the same way as you hear, you hear fans of mid-table or, or bottom-of-the-table sides complaining about the number of penalties that big teams get in their favour. Well, that's because they spend much more of the game on the front foot, mm-hmm. bursting into an opponent's penalty area. If you've got players who you know, run into a penalty area 50, 50 times a match, they're much more likely yeah. to get a penalty in their favour than if you do it 10 times a match. And there's talk at the other end of the field. Southampton have thrown away more points than any team this season from a winning position. 
they might say with a bit more luck, we would be comfortably off in mid-table with an extra sort of 10, 15 points. But actually, if opposition, if opponents sense you are vulnerable defensively, they will keep pushing to mm. the very end. So, yeah, Southampton have been a little bit unlucky, but a sense that they are there to be got at right up until the 94th minute, is going to contribute to that. But it happened in the, the Cardiff-Chelsea game with the offside decision, as Belaqueta clearly yeah. offside, but Chelsea were just bombarding Cardiff. The ball was constantly yeah. being, being played into the Cardiff box. So whether it's a mistake from the officials or a bit of luck or an error defensively, it's because for 25 minutes, the ball is constantly being played. So it's just the law of averages say that something might happen, a mistake might be made from officials or players, or, or something, Chelsea might do something amazing, completely out of the ordinary. But it's just because... Because it just it just keeps coming back. You sling, you sling a ball into the penalty yeah. area twenty times. I didn't sling a ball. Get... I never slung a ball. Into the <laughs> I didn't say area. you particularly. Cross the pinpoint accuracy but... is what you wanted to say. Uh, Eleven assists, ninety-four, ninety-five. Thank Chelsea, you. Chelsea are more likely to get a questionable offside decision in their favour in yes. that circumstances yeah. than Cardiff, yes. who aren't pushing for another goal in the game. That's what actually Neil Warnock after the game said. It always seems to happen to the smaller teams. For that reason, Neil, yes, because you're the game that you yeah. play, thirty percent of the ball playing on the counter attack, you're going to be defending a lot in your final, in your in your defensive. Exactly. Th- so these things are going to happen to the smaller teams because of the way that you play and the opposition dominate the that, games. That was very unfortunate. It was a it was, clear mistake was, by the was, officials. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Jackie Oatley, uh, the football presenter and reporter, has uh, has done some fine uh, investigative work to uh, to expose some of the sort of hypocrisy of what Warnock said after the game because it's only very recently that they had. Brighton, a decision yeah. go, yeah, Brighton Absolutely. go in their favour. Yeah. And afterwards he was laughing about it. Oh, well, Chris Hewton will just have to understand the missus has been reading the tea leaves and, you know, and the rubber, the green goes for it. Lady Luck was with us today. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Well, that's all been forgotten a couple mm. of weeks later when you didn't get the rubber of the green yeah. or the rubber of the green went against well, you. Well, that, that was interesting. After the game, I was, I was there for that game and listening to Sean Morrison, the Cardiff captain, talk about and He was saying exactly those terms. We've had things go for us earlier in the season. It is just, and you can sense from a player's point of view, he knew it was just wave after wave after wave. So whether it be a, an official's mistake or, or a defender going to sleep for the for the winning goal from Loftus Cheek, he, he can sense that he knows that maybe this was coming. We, we yeah. were maybe lucky if we'd got away with the point eventually. Even though we played really well for 70 minutes, we were getting battered for the last twenty. But uh, that's you're right there. I think for in terms of coaches, they do have to. But I know they're angry and very upset because of the way, and they could get relegated off the back of it. It could be really costly. But they do have to remember they might have had things go for them previously as well so the balance has to be you have to strike the balance somewhere. The, the, the other balance I'm interested in is genuinely how many of these moments of luck are down to a mistake by either the official or an opposition player as you just said Jinch so mm. do, do, do all moments of luck come as a result of a mistake by somebody else or are some moments of luck conjured and created out of a vacuum well it depends well, yeah, no, if, just, if, no just if it's if it's yeah, it kind of has to be the majority have to be a mistake by someone because otherwise it's not luck. So if, if Chelsea desperately need a, a late winner and Eden Hazard bends one in from 25 yards, that's not luck, is it? That's having Eden so Hazard. Give, yeah. Given that then, it, for example, Chinch, if you were, you were defending as a team who had a moment of luck against you late on, yeah. were you as a defender thinking, I am under more pressure, that creates a kind of a psychological 
framework in which you are more likely to make a mistake. Ne- so- never. While I was playing, I never thought I was tending to think about again the the Chinese meal <laughs> after the game. I would never. It was just you felt so hard done by because of all the preparation, all the planning, and you get so close to maybe achieving what you'd worked for all week that it's just devastating. And that's why coaches and players react maybe in the way that they do. But at, at that point, I'm not thinking, well, if, if a decision goes against us or the ball cannons off my, my ample backside and goes in, um, maybe that's just, we, 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 were, we were getting outplayed. We were getting, but you don't think like that. You, you just feel, you're trying to take pride in that final 15 minutes, just keeping a team out. And when, when you're beating that, if you make it a genuine, or the opposition score a brilliant goal because in the top corner, you can do nothing about it. Or you make um, a mistake. A defender doesn't stay with a, a runner or a goalkeeper's positioning isn't right. But it's those kind of big deflections that loop. They're, they're the ones that I think for coaches and players, that is just purely that could go anywhere. There's, there's nothing the opposition has necessarily done. There's nothing really that I've done wrong. It's just, again, it's just the way that it goes. That is an example of luck without mistake. Uh, a deflection, yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. wildly loops into a position where 99 times out of 100, it would have gone somewhere else Although or the, been saved, for example. It's still a consequence of pressure, though. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. Well, yes. you look at Frank Lampard, who scored a load of deflected goals. That's because Chelsea were on top, mm-hmm. and Lampard was shooting from good areas. But also, you so get, get those a lot. You get those a goals lot. when when crosses are played in, and actually a defender will be defensively in the wrong position. He might be facing his own goal, turns it into his own goal, and they'll say, "Oh, that's just bad luck." And I will say, "Well, actually, def- as maybe you've gone to sleep, you're under pressure defensively in the wrong position. So if you dropped maybe a couple of yards, you would clear the ball rather than play it back into your own net. So actually, there's still a mistake there defensively." whether it comes from just a lack of awareness or just the fact the opposition have just been battering you for, for half an hour. But there's still an element to goals. That you, have to, you have to actually look at them and actually think, well, is there, a, is there a defensive error in there? Or is it just purely, you know, if you're in absolutely the right position and a shot hits you on the chest and loops over the goal, and you, well, actually, I, I couldn't have done anything differently. But if you could have done something differently, then there's an element that you've made the mistake, which has maybe led to what's happened as well. So it's not always down to luck when it cannons off a defender. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about the, the goal that wasn't in the Bundesliga game. I was commentating on where the, where the Hanover player shot the ball goals from about 12 yards and it just stopped dead on the line in the snow. Mm. And and somebody had, had emailed in said I didn't seem surprised that that happened and, and I wasn't because it had been happening all over the place. And there was a lot of sort of sense from Hanover about how unlucky they were. But again, I say that wasn't unlucky. Anyone who tried to kick the ball 10 yards along the ground in that match had seen it stop dead. So actually, it was a misjudgment. Yeah. Yeah. The player yeah. needed to lift the ball off the ground yeah. to get it into the back of the net. So yeah, the so, decision-making comes into it. So have we got an example of pure... Can you think of something, a famous example of just pure... Is it just those deflections? Just pure luck? There's nothing, there's nothing that anybody... The attacking team hasn't done anything brilliant. The defensive team hasn't got an awful lot wrong. Is there anything in the World Cup but, final or in a, a, cup, a European Cup final where... What Steve is saying about the fact that that person is in that position because they are on top and applying the pressure. So mm. they wouldn't necessarily be in that position if the, if the whole... It was completely mm-hmm. a vacuum. But also luck is invoked by often the loser to give a reason as to why that team won because they don't want to accept that it was a mistake or deficiency on their part. It's not often invoked by the winner because, as Rory said, uh, managers want to seem like they are in control of everything that happens uh, on the field. And and as Chris Bascom has, has written um, uh, in The Telegraph this week, and if you think back to Fergie time, Fergie time was invoked by all those people who suffered by, Ver- Fer- by Fergie time, either directly or indirectly because they were a, a challenge uh, title rival. There was, oh, United are so lucky. But of course it was because of everything that you said, Steve. Yeah. That, that this is the weight of evidence that shows that, that Manchester United were in that position time and time again. And so that was um, as much of a reason um, that that happened. So can it be, 
if it's 50% luck, can it be genuinely 50% or are we saying that it's only a smaller amount because genuinely everything else can be explained by something a little bit more tangible? It, it, I mean, what Chin says is, is, is right. that if you So if you think about the, um, the Man United penalty that beat PSG, so were they lucky that Diodo Dalot's shot, which was not did not look like it was going in, no. happened to hit Presnel Kimpembe on the arm? I would say, yeah, they're, they're a bit lucky. Did Kimpembe make a mistake with the way he jumped? Mm-hmm. Yes. Was the luck then that it happened at that... Does the timing there has mm-hmm. to be so right for that to hit his arm? It has to be kind of to the split second. It has, does it feel like how the ball's travelling, how Kimpembe's travelling? You are reliant on kind of a lot of random... Luck, luck again is not necessarily a great word for it, but you're reliant on a lot of kind of random events all happening at exactly the right time for that to happen. A favour of fortune, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Lady luck, Lady as, luck. as, yes, as Neil Warnock Neil would, Warnock would, sometimes would say. So yeah, you, you, you can, <laughs> I guess, take these things back and say right, well, it, it, is there is that pure luck, or is there a mistake? Is it is it has it kind of exposed the flaw in the opposition team? Is it that the pressure has told after a while? I would have said, to be honest, in that Kimpembe incident, there, there's obviously a, yeah. a mistake in his body shape. It's a relatively minor mistake. I loved the coverage afterwards of, of all these people saying exactly how he should jump, and you think, well, he's just jumping, lads, for crying out loud, calm down. How much like, time has he got to think about? Yeah, it? I mean, they're not PSG are not standing around in the. At their training ground, spent saying, Thomas Tuttle saying, "Right, lads, we've done pressing. Now we're going to do how you jump for for two hours." And now it works. He just he he didn't quite jump in the right way. I still don't know what he was meant to do with his arms. But anyway, he should. They should. He was just not very brave, was he? He was like, "Oh, oh the yeah, ball might hit me." players do he jump turned away from knowing it. exactly what they're doing. And if the ball hits their hand, they say, "Oh, I, 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 yeah, completely yeah, yeah. accidental." Yet they know. Did you ever exa- practice jumping? Never practice jumping. I should have practiced do you football think Kim, a bit more. Did you think Kimpembe was jumping in a way that allowed himself? I would not have jumped. In that way, to would you not? No, because it, it to me it didn't seem. Mm. It did seem a little bit. It did seem a little bit cowardly. Chinch would have been would, would have got his foot up, controlled the ball, bought it effortlessly. I'm, not, out I'm not saying that. I would have been on your I'm right. Not saying that, but it, it's, it's one of those. Chinch's head. It's one of those. Six foot two. If you're going to get hit with the ball, hit me in an area that's not going to hurt me. That was always my plan. <laughs> right. So your face. So hit me in the face. I've got no feeling there. Hit me in the nether regions again. Um, that's what sometimes players do tend to. I'll make an effort, but I don't really like John Terry would just and Gary Kay of defenders. I just jump face first into challenge. Yeah. They didn't care. Whereas other defenders these days with very nice hairdos and good complexions want to make the block, but please let it hit me on the foot, well, it, not just, the ghoulies. Yeah, just as a, a playing Sunday League, like there, there was a point at which you, you think I will try and block this shot, but I, I do not intend to get one. Between the legs, like that, <laughs> that is not like I, 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 I don't care. That's going in, too far. I don't care enough about the result for that to happen. <laughs> if, if somebody was shooting anywhere near me, I'd just curl up into a fetal position and just hope. But that, so that, 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 that then comes into it. That Defensively, to, that's that's not doing your job, is it? There is that must apply goalkeepers to, have to get a ball in the face occasionally. That is just as good a save as, a, as tipping the ball when it's going to the top corner. It's the same thing. And defenders, these do seem a little bit reticent I, at times to get I don't, hurt. I don't think that's a these day thing. I think that's always happened. I think really? there has always been one of the one of the problems with defending has always been that people don't want to get take a shot in the nudges basically but that's well, not Rory was the only Cunningham cult that when he was getting ready he's get his boot bag out right boots shin pads box yes <laughs> that will need explaining to our overseas listeners <laughs> yes that is the protective item that you wear in a cricket match the, there is but there is a hypocrisy <laughs> among managers that is worth noting which is that as you say managers 
And Klopp, I think, is probably quite bad for this. I don't think he's any worse than... He's not a vast amount worse than anybody else. Managers want to create... We build managers up, and they build man- themselves up, to be an all-powerful kind of... I've got everything under control. Exactly, like, I'm yeah. the man in charge of destiny. So for them to say, to come out and say, even if they know it deep down, actually, do you know what? Not quite sure how that happened. It was all just a bit of a mess, wasn't it? That that doesn't... That's almost not what... They're, they're almost not allowed to say yeah. that by our football culture, which places upon them this kind of incredible agency. But it is ironic that in defeat, that is basically what they say. But I suppose that's... Champions League final, with Loris Carriers potentially being concussed and making those mistakes, is that a lack of luck or is that just simply a mistake being made because of either the attentions of Sergio Ramos or... Again, I'd say it's, it's both. It's, the, it's, it's a flaw in Liverpool's team because they had a bad goalkeeper and that gets found out at the top level. But it's, it's bad luck that it happened then. Does if if, if yeah, Carrius makes is, those d- mistakes, d- Liverpool would maybe say that the luck has balanced itself out, just like decisions do over the course of a season. I don't know if that's necessarily true or not. Um, but if, is, is luck able to apportion her wiles equally? I think getting flattened by Sergio Aware Ramos happens too frequently for it to be considered an <laughs> yeah, unlucky yeah. situation. <laughs> but but it's no, no just one, the rules of the game need adjusting. <laughs> very few people, and for all this is, there's a I have a, a bugbear developing within me like a virus about kind of the unreasonableness of people not allowing fans to enjoy things, but which I think we talked about before. But no, I don't remember in the aftermath of the Champions League final anyone saying Liverpool were unlucky to lose that game because their goalkeeper threw two in. No one said they were unlucky. It, no. it might be no. used as an example, and Chris Baskin mentioned it in his piece, that it might be used as an example of justifying luck that you might get. In goal, the, the goalkeeper errors. Yeah, okay. goalkeeping errors, weren't they? There were errors. Was, so there, was not, there were errors. It's so not luck. It's, it's no, not I, having... I wouldn't define that as luck. No. At all. I was going to say, do we not just have to accept luck as being part of the game? It's part of life. And get on with it's, it. It's just the way that but it as, is. as a player, were you ever able to embrace that idea? No. Because it always <laughs> tended... That, even it always that tended to... for so many of your free kick goals. It always tended to be... You always remember when it worked against you you don't tend to remember I, I'm trying to think now of things that happened because when it went for you you'd have been oh I, we would do that because well, of X, Y and Z that happened previously yeah. you don't remember yeah. when, when the negative happens you don't remember ABC that you got a bit fortunate with the other true. week that, true that's our confirmation bias thing yeah, yeah. isn't it that's I remember the I scored when City got Man City got promoted back to I think it's the old first division we played at Liverpool and I took a free kick and it cannoned in off John Barnes's buttocks <laughs> Yeah, I claimed the goal and was given the goal, but clearly without John Barnes's buttocks, it wouldn't have gone in. So that's, that's look. Like I just Mo smashed Salah the ball goalwards. The goal <laughs> that was extraordinary. <laughs> the end of that so game. I hit it goalwards. Clearly, I've not tried to use my footballing wiles mm. to whip it over the wall. It kind of, I just smashed it into the wall. It hit someone and wrong-footed. Grobbler probably, uh, and he goes in. But that's that's just luck because I've not intended it. I've just hit it and hope yeah. something happens for me, and it and it did. That's one I remember that happened. I was very unlucky as a defender many, many occasions. <laughs> I know I was in absolutely the right defensive position time after time after time and yet cannoned in off, off my chin or buttocks. <laughs> the two most uh, prominent pr- features. Prominent you were in the right defensive position but the winger just happened to be stood somewhere else. Yes. Right. Um, we should uh, deal with fate uh, quickly as well because that, that that's an element of this discussion. Just quickly, uh, there's a piece on the BBC Sport website. It's always nice to credit uh, where you get your ideas from, isn't it? BBC Sport website. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> that, Not just that department of the BBC. No, that's true. There's many um, others. We should, and also um, external production companies. Um, we we should give them the credit.
credit for saying that they've done they've crunched the numbers and they have said that it's not necessarily the team that scores the most late winners that wins the league. Well, no, so then, but that's that. late goals plays a part, but late winners in particular uh, is not a statistic that sends you in the direction of Premier League winners. I would eventually. have thought that that is actually count is is is, is a contraindicator. Because if you're having to score lots of late winners, that suggests that you're having to put an awful lot of effort in to lots of lots of games, which will eventually tell in your legs and you will be tired and want to go to sleep. Whereas what I think the teams that breeze the titles, like the Arsenal teams that used to win games, used to be 3-0 up yeah. after, exactly. te- after 20 minutes. And they just, they, just, they just sort of strolled around for 70 yeah. minutes. That's was, the difference I feel between City and Liverpool and why I still feel City will win the title, because they will win games comfortably. Easily. Liverpool seem to be having to I know it's Tottenham that's a big game it's a hard game but they're, they're having to against Fulham they're really yeah. having to grind out yeah, which again, Burnley, yeah. again, you, again you can win need, titles doing that you shouldn't need these City moments. are having to work hard I to think, win games I think the that is a, a really important factor because it is, isn't it? yes but for, for a slightly different reason oh, <laughs> which is that the, the one thing Liverpool have in their favour is City's workload because they've got all these games. I think they play every three days between now and... The end of April, I think. Yeah. But uh, when you're winning games, Rory, you just want to play games. <laughs> that's apparently true, and that's what everyone that's says. That's Pep. But the... the Lovely accent from Barnsley. Pep, <laughs> <laughs> Pep Guardiola. It'd be great if Pep turned out to be from Barnsley. <laughs> It's well, all it's an a, act. All, yeah, it's first, a big charade. First three letters are the same. Hey, least. David, Kevin, just keep playing. We're winning games. <laughs> Uh, you're halfway through a point, which you will completely. Sorry, Rory. Rory. Sorry. Sorry. The reason it's significant is because w- <laughs> it, it, if you take it as a test of City's legs and Liverpool's nerves, the title, the title race, and whichever one goes first will define it, then City's legs will last. City's legs are, the, are, the, are a challenge because they've played every 90 minutes available to them this season. At some point, ordinarily, that should start to tell. They also ha- they play every three days potentially until the second week of May until the end of the Premier League season basically just if they get through to the Champions League semi-finals. The semifinals they have a game every three three or four days between now and and the end of the Premier League season so at some point you would expect them to slip up it might not obviously be in the prem- in the Premier League they could slip up in the Champions League they could slip up in the FA Cup or whatever but the difference is that if they are winning games after twenty or thirty minutes and the remaining hour is a training session legs aren't an issue then the legs yeah. aren't an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, We'll, we'll quickly deal with fate because because um, it's nonsense. So we don't need to do a lot yes, on it. Could be, it was nice. It's nice to mention it because um, Peter Drury uh, on the World Feed Premier League commentary of the game. How were you following that, I was, uh, uh, Hugh? How were you watching the World just, Feed? I was Bearing outside. In mind you are a I UK. was outside of the country. Uh, 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 was there a specific location? On, as certain, to the, on certain flights for certain airlines, you are able to get access to live football. Should we tell him the, the Peter Drury story about what was on his name tag when we were working all together oh, yeah, down in we London? We should. We should. On his name tag. The same name tag that had brandy... Brandy cheeseburger. Brandy cheeseburger. I tell them, they get my name wrong all the time. It started with Sandy Minchcliffe, and I thought, (laughs) right, I'm just going to have a bit of fun with it. So they actually put whatever name I want on me. I've had, what what did I have for Randy Bench Press and Brandy Cheeseburger? This is IMG. Yeah, so so we're working, covering all these games, England games, and we're all, after half time, we tend to come out and kind of chew the fat about what's been going on. I looked at Peter's pass, and clearly he'd said his name. My name's Peter Drury. On his pass, it was written Peter Brewery. <laughs> Brewery. And he hadn't told them. That's not right. He'd just taken the pass and gone off. It's because he'd seen nothing. yours and thought they're doing it to he everybody. He hadn't seen it. No one had seen it. It was brilliant. Peter and, Brewery. And if you needed a man to organise that in a <laughs> yeah, brewery, absolutely. Peter would do a fine job of yeah, it. Yeah. The way that he described the uh, late goal that uh, started our conversation today was to say that perhaps it is fate that Liverpool will win the title. Now, again, it's a little bit of a device. It sounds beautiful if Liverpool go on to win the title because it's one of those moments that you can drag up and say, look, um, uh, we nailed it. But Everyone's also, thinking about the montage. Everybody's yeah. thinking about the montage and that 
that's absolutely fine. We've spoken about Martin Tyler many times on this uh, podcast to say how he sets stuff up 99 times. It doesn't matter that it doesn't work because the 100th time, it sounds amazing. This so, is, is actually something that gets thrown, abandoned around about Match of the Day, is that a lot of people think that Match of the Day commentaries are done afterwards. And, and um, Guy Mowbray tackled this head on with someone on Twitter quite recently. Said, this person who concept said, you're ruining Match of the Day for me because you've clearly done it afterwards because you've anticipated the goal. No, that's what you do when you're watching a game. You anticipate that something might happen. Yeah. If you say, oh, you know, they need to score now and they don't, well, that's not going to make it into the seven-minute match of the day edit <laughs> because they've not scored. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. So, so these sort of things do come up quite often. Is actually. there anything else in Fate apart from being a commentator's device? I mentioned Clyde Tilsley uh, at the beginning. He famously kept on saying name on the trophy for I those don't believe that, in fate. Manchester United. Do you believe in Fate as a concept? That this is deep. Well, well but do you? I did mention at the beginning that we didn't I, want I to get too much into Buddhism. But, no. but so, so fate, fate does not play any tangible part. It is just a nice way of dressing something up so that if it were to happen, it looks and sounds. What good. looks like fate is two things. One is momentum, which is which is relevant for Liverpool. I think that storing late winners probably does give you, give you quite a lot of belief. Yeah. The players will believe they they are not not necessarily easy. You know, if they're one all with whoever in the, in the next game, then they might find that extra well, reserve of confidence. It's Southampton, so they'll definitely score a late goal in there. It depends when people are listening. That's true. But people people are listening mid-May and be thinking, this is all a lot of rubbish anyway, so don't worry. Can't believe it. Arsenal <laughs> stormed to the title. <laughs> that was such a, such a gap. That 16-point gap just Incredible evaporated. Incredible how they both collapsed. <laughs> the, um, it was fate. The, but yeah, so it's partly momentum and it's partly this desire to counteract luck by identifying moments on which we think it, that we think are sort of harbingers of what's a trouble. narrative, building a story for us to understand that yeah. human beings function on stories. That's how we tell. That's how we learn things. That's how we we work. So what we do is we look at the season where there are a million different things happening constantly. And I went through just Liverpool season really on Sunday for the piece that I wrote from that game. And you think about, there's loads of moments that people have said, well, that's the moment, that could be the moment that cost them it, or that that's the moment that says that this is their their year. They can't all be right, and none of them are, because it's each individual one can't happen with all the ones that preceded it and would mean nothing without all the ones that followed it. Everybody's that's, forgotten the Mares miss. It's the Mares penalty. It's the Mares then, penalty. Didn't it? Oh, it's fate. Everything even, is fate from that point but onwards. Then the flip side to that is the, the Mane shot at the Etihad that doesn't go over the line. Yeah. So, and then Aridi scores the winner against Everton, but misses a 96th minute chance against West Ham. This is just the season. This is just what happens. None of these moments is, is individually more important. They are. It's all just kind of a collection of events that happen. And what we do at the end is we sort of impose a, a story on it. So we can say, well, actually, when Mares missed that penalty in October we knew that Liverpool were going to win the title. Or when Mane's shot didn't go over the line, we knew that Man City were going to win the title. We didn't, because they t- all their players could have got injured. Have I, ever mentioned, have I mentioned Everton's cup final win of 1990... <laughs> was it 1995? Have I, me- I might have I mentioned it. I'm not sure whether I have. Remember. But people will say, oh, your name was on the trophy that year. But we played Derby, Bristol City and Newcastle leading up to the toughest games against Tottenham. So really, we won the cup by beating two decent teams. Mm. It wasn't fate after I scored the winner, <laughs> surprisingly, against Derby. People said, wow, your name must be on the trophy. No, we've beaten Derby 1-0. But again, it's with hindsight. You can say, oh, yes, yeah, it was meant to be. It's preordained. I just think it's cobblers. Uh, 
which which feels like a very sensible way oh. of ending the discussion. Uh, before we go, it's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. Or alternatively, it's time for Chinch to find his notes on his phone. Found it. This is when Andy tells the tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Um, I've told the story of when I was in my younger days playing against Billy Whitehurst, mm-hmm. the fearsome Sheffield United and other club centre-forward who was very, very scary. And he scared me at a very young age, uh, probably about 18 when I was first starting out playing, even though I played at 16 because I was precocious. <laughs> so you weren't really starting out. So as, I, as my career developed, there was very little on a football pitch that I would that, that would frighten me because mm. I was well known as a tough cookie and um, you know I could sleep with the light off, that type of thing. Um, <laughs> but there was one game in particular that I had to look up this morning. I was wondering, did any other player, did I ever come up against that really frightened me? And there was, there was a game. September 2000, Sheffield Wednesday against Wimbledon at Hillsborough. Uh, Paul Jewell was the manager, so no surprises, we lost 5-0 at home. <laughs> the half-time team talk is another story. Anyway. What was the half-time team talk? Uh, oh, that's another, another story. story. That's, not, that's another story. This is John Hartson. Bite-sized chunks. Bite-sized chunks. John Hartson was playing for Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Now, John Hartson, and what, what Lovely, got me man. thinking about that? Yes, because I was listening to the Newport Man City commentary in the FA Cup, and John Hartson was the co-commentator. Because he's Welsh. Because he's Welsh. And just hearing his voice, Pick. not because he was Welsh, <laughs> frightened me, but John Hartson, because I, I don't really, I've never really seen him on the rounds and stuff, and just hearing his voice again <laughs> brought me out in a cold sweat. <laughs> you never see him, because he's always slightly behind you watching. <laughs> Is he? <laughs> oh, I, oh, of course he would be, wouldn't he? Yeah. Yes. Anyway, anyway. But so this game... Beat, beat you up the... He scored. I had to actually look at the um, just to remind myself of how many mistakes I made for the five Wimbledon goals. And John Hartson did shrug me off quite easily. I don't know who was reporting on it. it was rubbish. Clearly, he didn't he? Must have overpowered me. But at the end of the game, we'd lost. Losing's bad enough, isn't it? Losing at home's worse. Awful. Losing at home five nil is worse again. Yeah. Losing at home five nil to Wimbledon. Can it get any worse in football? And at the end of the game, I mean, you kind of do those token handshakes that. Because you're all professionals, it's kind of, yeah, well played. We've been beaten. For, you just you want to get it over with, don't you? I remember going over to John Hartson, and you kind of don't even look at them. Do you just stick out a hand, and you're kind of walking off before you shook hands. And he grabbed hold of my hand, slightly crushed it, and he pulled me towards him, and he looked in my eyes and said, you look in my eyes when you say, well played. I said, okay, John. <laughs> Is that right? He wouldn't let me go until I'd actually made eye contact with him. And he said, you look me in the eye when you shake my hand. You don't walk away from me. Hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Never been as frightened in my life at that moment. Because I thought, he had, cause didn't, didn't he kick somebody in the face? Yeah, well, well, yeah. He had quite a, and I had a quite a feisty reputation. But clearly, this is a mismatch here. Uh, frowns around the table. You know, I would take on children or people at five foot five. I'd probably Small pick dogs. on them. I'm not going to pick on John Hartson, especially after he'd lost what? five. No, but I was truly frightened by the man. What was intimidating about his style of play? Um, he used to elbow you in the face quite a lot. <laughs> right. And he was kind of, he, ha- he was young, but he, he, his head was older than his body because he, went, he was kind of thinning, wasn't he? Mm. And gingery. Yes. And he, was, and he had like a beard going on. He looked kind of odd. <laughs> he, he was a very scary man. I found him a very scary man. He, John Hartson is lovely. We should, we should put these two together. We really should. And he's Finch been through hell as well, hasn't he? Yes. Oh, he's, yeah, it's an incredible story. But I remember but as a player, he was, he was... And that is one of the... Again, being a grown man rather than an 18-year-old with Billy Whitehurst, being a, a grown man with children and a Chinese to look forward to. The Chinese <laughs> that night, by the way, was very bitter. <laughs> very bitter. 
I don't know what they put in the. Uh, I don't know what they put in the chow mein, but it was awful. <laughs> they clearly blamed you. It's in the result. Oh my goodness me! But anyway, he he truly frightened me, and I couldn't wait to get back to the sanctity of the dressing rooms to get away from the fearsome John Hartson. But he pulled me towards me and said, "Look me in the eye." when you shake my hand. Another chinch confessional. Thank you very much indeed. Mm. We leave you with a reminder of how to get in touch at setpiecemenu on Twitter, setpiecemenu at gmail.com, facebook.com forward slash setpiecemenu. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Steve and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Hector's just asleep at chinch's feet. He's his foot warmer. Did you yeah. notice that? He just sits he on He always feet. does that when we're here. He doesn't like me when I come in though but no, he's suspicious very... of your, the way you enter it's just if you're lolloping walk I've got a lolloping walk you do you walk a bit like knees. a cowboy <laughs> you walk like John Wayne what bow legged bow legged with your, with your thumbs tucked into your belt I do not <laughs> do. I can wear a belt <laughs> That's it's the Spurs which really there. finish off the look though, it is, it's the Spurs and the, the don't talk and... to me about Spurs very nearly signed for them <laughs> it's quite disconcerting when we're at Roy's actually because I, I never know whether Hugh or Chinch are playing footsie with me or if Hector's on the move just Hector, it's the Hector sniffing for treats that last one was me I was getting excitable as I came he, to the end is, of the podcast he's definitely he's definitely my dog isn't he he's he lying here you, yeah. at my he's, why uh, is that he's also he, knows, he knows I've got a good soul your natural charisma no no dogs can see into your soul it's also the smallest feet of the table as well ah yes yeah, so dogs, easy no, coverage dogs and children like me it's grown ups that tend to have an aversion then John Hartson <laughs>